Hello, and welcome to the USF Emergency Medicine Podcast. This week's podcast topic is going to be OBGYN. First, we'll cover the emergency delivery. You should suspect the presence of a possible emergency delivery whenever you have a patient who is in the second half of pregnancy coming in with abdominal or pelvic symptoms for greater than an hour. True labor is characterized by regular rhythmic progression of uterine contractions followed by cervical effacement and dilation. Sometimes patients can present with what's called Braxton Hicks contractions. These are false contractions and the key here is that they do not intensify in strength or frequency. When you have a patient who comes in at greater than 20 weeks gestational age with abdominal or pelvic complaints, there are a few questions you want to ask. You want to determine if the patient is having contractions, if they've had any leakage of fluid or vaginal bleeding, and what their OB history is. If the patient is experiencing dark vaginal blood, this can sometimes be the bloody show, which is indicative of possible impending labor. If the patient has a large volume of bright red blood, this can indicate a possible placenta previa or placental abruption. You'll also want to evaluate the fetus normal fetal heart rate is between 120 and 160. If you're concerned for placenta previa or placental abruption, or if there is spontaneous rupture of the membranes, do not perform a digital vaginal exam, as this could increase the risk of infection or bleeding. Preterm labor is defined as labor at 22 to 34 weeks. In these patients, you'll want to give tocolytics such as prostaglandin, as well as steroids to facilitate lung surfactant development in the premature neonate. If a patient is in active labor and it appears that there is time for the patient to go to labor and delivery or to be transferred to the appropriate facility, then that is safe to do so. However, if you find yourself in a situation where a patient is in active labor and delivery is likely to happen in the ER, we're going to review some of the possible complications of delivery. The first we'll talk about is shoulder dystocia. This is sometimes indicated with a turtle sign where the patient's head is coming out of the vaginal canal and then retracting back in as the patient's pushing. Complications of shoulder dystocia include aspiration or asphyxiation, brachial plexopathies, and humeral clavicle fractures. Here's an algorithm of steps to perform when you are encounter shoulder dystocia. First, you should apply supplemental oxygen to mom as this will facilitate oxygen to the fetus. Next, you'll want to empty the bladder with a Foley as this can sometimes contribute to shoulder dystocia. The first maneuver you'll want to try is the McRoberts maneuver. This is when you have the patient hyperflex the thighs to the abdomen and you may have to have someone help perform this maneuver in order to reach its maximum effect. The next maneuver to apply is suprapubic pressure. Remember to apply the pressure to the suprapubic area. This will help to push the anterior shoulder on underneath the pubic symphysis. You'll want to do this for 30 seconds of continuous pressure or the rocking motion. Do not apply pressure to the fundus of the uterus. If this is not working, you can try the all fours maneuver where you have the patient sitting on her hands and knees, and this can help sometimes gravity deliver the posterior shoulder. If neither of these are working, you can try either the Rubin or the Woods corkscrew maneuvers. The Rubin maneuver, you insert your fingers and attempt to adduct the posterior shoulder to decrease the shoulder axis diameter in hopes of delivering both shoulders. 
With the Woods Corkscrew Maneuver, you'll want to put posterior lateral pressure on the posterior shoulder in hopes to turn the fetus 180 degrees. Another option is the Barnum Maneuver. This is where you insert your fingers and grasp the posterior arm, following it down to its elbow, at which point you try to flex the arm and deliver the posterior shoulder. Last resort options are to induce a clavicle fracture or perform the Zavanelib maneuver, which is where the baby is pushed back in and sent to the OR for a C-section. Next, we'll talk about breech presentation, where the baby's feet are bottom are presenting rather than the head. In these situations, you'll want to apply as little traction as possible and have the baby deliver itself naturally without too much pushing. A medial to lateral episiotomy is an option in order to open up the vaginal canal for more space for the buttock or the feet to be delivered. You'll want to try to maintain the baby's sacrum anteriorly and insert the fingers so one hand is holding the maxilla and the other is flexing the head. It's important to try to not hyperextend the neck as the baby is coming out and remember to not apply too much traction. Another complication of active labor is umbilical cord prolapse. In this situation, the risk is that the umbilical cord will be compressed by a fetal part, leading to decreased blood flow to the fetus. You'll want to place the mom in the Trendelenburg position prone on her stomach to relieve any pressure sitting on the umbilical cord. You'll also want to elevate the presenting part, which is usually the head, and keep the part presented until the patient can go for a C-section. If the patient has to be transported, fill the bladder with a Foley to elevate the umbilical cord and try to keep the cord warm and dry with wet saline. Another complication of delivery is a nuchal cord where the umbilical cord is wrapped around the neck of the fetus. In this case, you'll want to try to reduce the cord and unravel it from around the neck. If this is not possible, you can clamp the cord and cut it and then proceed with delivery. Once the fetus is delivered, you then will have to deliver the placenta. This can sometimes result in uterine inversion if too much traction is put on the placenta, so be sure to pull it slowly and gently. Also, you may have to apply uterine massage after delivery or administer oxytocin if there is significant uterine bleeding. Now we'll talk about some complications that can arise in the postpartum period. The first we'll talk about is bleeding. Early bleeding is considered to be within the first 24 hours of delivery. Common causes are uterine atony, lacerations, retained placental parts, placenta acrevia, uterine inversion, uterine rupture, or coagulopathy. If uterine atony exists, you can give oxytocin, orgonavine, methyl orgonavine, or methyl prostaglandin in order to increase the tone of the uterus and prevent further bleeding. If the uterus is inverted, you can manually restore it. And if there is significant bleeding, refractory to all therapy, you may have to contact IR for embolization. If a patient comes in with bleeding past 24 hours and up to six weeks, this is considered late postpartum bleeding, most commonly caused by retained products of the placenta or delayed placental site involution. This will require an ultrasound to determine whether or not there are retained products of the placenta. Next, we'll talk about fever in the postpartum period. If the fever is within two days of delivery, you should think of uterine and pelvic or as well as UTI or respiratory infections. Endometritis should definitely be higher in differential if the patient comes in with fevers as well as foul-smelling discharge. This can be treated with unison or zosin with clindamycin or a third-generation cephalosporin. 
pyelonephritis or a UTI can be treated with a fluoroquinolone. And don't forget to consider a neck fash or an abscess, which can be treated with incision and drainage. Patients greater than 48 hours may come in with uterine and pelvic infections as well as episiotomy wounds and breast wounds or thrombophlebitis, and you can treat as needed with antibiotics. Next, we'll talk about hypertension in the postpartum period. A postpartum female can experience preeclampsia or eclampsia between 48 hours and up to four weeks after delivery. Postpartum hypertension attributed to preeclampsia can be new even after the patient's already delivered. It's defined as a diastolic pressure greater than 90 on two different occasions or greater than 100 on one occasion or a systolic blood pressure greater than 140 on two occasions six hours apart. For these patients, you'll want to get a urinalysis to look for proteinuria as well as a CBC with labs to evaluate for hemolysis, a CMP to evaluate LFTs, a magnesium, as well as labs to evaluate for possible DIC such as PT, PTT, fibrinogen, You'll also want to consider getting a CT abdomen if the patient's having red quadrant pain that would suggest HELP syndrome. Treatment for pre-eclampsia is first line with labetalol or propanolol, and then you can also consider nifedipine, repamil, or hydralazine, and of course give magnesium sulfate to prevent eclampsia. Next, we'll talk about headache in the postpartum period. This is often attributed to exhaustion or dehydration from caring for a newborn infant, but there are some serious conditions to consider and rule out. The first being preeclampsia with headache due to increased blood pressure, which we just talked about. Other considerations are possible postural headache from an epidural, the treatment of which is to do a blood patch if refractory to any other medical treatment. You should also consider a CNS infection that can happen from an epidural injection as well as subarachnoid hemorrhage and, of course, the cerebral venous sinus thrombosis as patients are uh, prone to hypercoagulability during pregnancy. This, of course, treated with anticoagulation. Finally, it's also important to consider a possible cardiomyopathy in any patient that presents postpartum with shortness of breath, cough, and dyspnea. They'll also have signs of left-sided heart failure, such as JVD and lower extremity edema. These patients are treated the same way as our heart failure patients with nitroglycerin, BiPAP, and possible Lasix for fluid overload. Now I'll talk about drugs in pregnancy, which can be a tricky topic. So to shorten this up, I'm just going to go through a list of different medications that are safe for different symptoms or conditions in the ER. For pain, try to stick to Tylenol and opioids. Avoid any NSAIDs. For asthma exacerbations, beta agonists and steroids are safe in pregnancy. For diabetes, insulin is also safe in pregnancy. For hypertension, try to manage with hydralazine, labetalol, methyl dopa, or clonidine. For dysrhythmias, avoid amiodarone as it has many adverse side effects. Adenosine and lidocaine are okay in pregnancy. For anticoagulation, avoid warfarin and opt for heparin, lovenox, or fondaparinox. For seizures, almost none of the anti-seizure medications are safe for pregnancy, so you'll have to weigh risk-benefit and possibly consult with your neurologic specialist. For GI complaints such as reflux, proton pump inhibitors, and H2 blockers are safe. All UTIs in pregnancy should be treated, and these can be done with cephalosporins, beta-lactams, or nitrofurotonin, although this should be avoided in the second. Treatment for syphilis is with penicillin G IM times 1. Herpes simplex virus typically presents as a group of small grouped vesicles on a red base with shallow ulcers. These do tend to be very painful. 
and can be tested for with PCR and treated with acyclovir. Chancroid is caused by Haemophilus ducri, and this causes a very tender, irregularly shaped lesion that is shallow and often found in multiple groups. This can be treated with azithromycin, ceftriaxone, or cephalosporin or erythromycin. The last ulcerative STD we'll talk about is lymphogranulomum venereum, which is caused by chlamydia. This will typically present as a unilateral, tender, firm mass with typically having inguinal lymphadenopathy. This is treated with either doxycycline or erythromycin. Next, we'll talk about the non-ulcerative STDs, and the most common being chlamydia and gonorrhea. Males typically present with symptoms of urethritis or epididymitis, and females present with dysuria, vaginal discharge, or pelvic pain. You'll want to perform a nucleic acid amplification test to confirm the diagnosis of chlamydia. Treatment is with azithromycin 1 gram PO or doxycycline 100 milligrams PO for seven days. You'll also want to treat with rocephin for co-infection of gonococcal STD. Gonorrhea typically presents as urethritis in males with symptoms including dysuria and penile discharge. They may also complain of testicular swelling and pain. Similarly, females will present with pelvic pain, vaginal bleeding, or vaginal discharge, or they may present asymptomatic. This is treated with one gram of rocephin IM. And there's a quick review of OBGYN in the ER. See you in Grand Round.